You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. To Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and to the Beatitudes. Um, I'll say to the boys and girls, tonight's your last night, because I'm ordering my prizes this week. For those of you who have memorized the Beatitudes, uh, tell me uh, this after the service. But we read from verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... By the way, notice that. Um, It's his disciples that came to him. So often the Sermon on the Mount is presented as a a sermon that's for absolutely everybody. And if only we just lived by the Sermon on the Mount, we'd all be happy. But this is to his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it's a while ago, but we saw the last time we looked at this, that blessed are the poor in spirit, basically refers to an attitude that we need to have which is the reverse of the attitude of our culture. And our culture says, if you are strong, if you're going to be happy, if you're going to get on well in life, then you've got to be in control. You've got to live your own life, your best life now. You've got to be autonomous. You've got to be in charge. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you have to grasp and you have to understand this, that you have to realize your dependence And you have to be poor in spirit, not arrogant and not proud. Now, that's difficult enough. But then this one that we look at, blessed are those who mourn, well, they will be comforted, is even harder, I think, to understand. Mourning is grief and sorrow caused by profound loss. It's usually associated with death, although it's interesting that in our culture there is a move shifting towards let's celebrate someone's life. When we go to their funeral, let's celebrate it. Well, we can give thanks for someone's life, but if they have meant anything to us at all, we will mourn their death. Those of us who are believers, even if our, the person we are burying or mourning is, was a believer, we still mourn because They've gone, and it's a loss to us. We mourn, but there are different kinds of losses that we have, different things that make us sad in that way. Now, here's the difficulty, and that's how this is reflected in terms of funerals in our culture. The world is absolutely determined to get away from mourning. After the well, during the Second World War, in the song, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile. And the whole idea of uh, mourning or being mournful is one that is antithetical. It's, 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 it's something that our culture finds hard and difficult. But Jesus says that we are blessed if we mourn. And he says, Luke 6, woe to you who laugh now. And again, notice how we live in a culture where having a good laugh, that's the whole aim of life. But Jesus says we have to mourn. Now, I want to say something else as well. 
in terms of outreach and evangelism. I'll tell you one of the reasons we find outreach and evangelism so difficult is because we assume that everything is in order and all we have to do is go out and evangelize and people will want to become Christians. I think there has been a reaction against what I would call a false kind of Puritanism. Now, I love the Puritans, and I think they were great, and I think uh, you would all do yourselves a tremendous amount of good by reading the Puritans. But there's a kind of false kind of Puritanism, a a kind of assumed piety, uh, where it's assumed that you're going to be miserable and dark and joyless if you come to church. But I think we've gone the opposite way. I think you know, everything's got to appear to be bright and jovial. So this is, for me, is very helpful how we look at it. It is counterintuitive to a lot of what we expect or experience around us. Let's say, first of all, what mourning is not. It's not a heavy or depressive spirit. It's not a personality that's melancholic or introverted. Those can be characteristic of a person who is not poor in spirit. In other words, mourning is not just someone who's sad. So you might be here this evening and you say, well, I'm pretty cool with this because I'm never happy. I'm depressed all the time or I'm miserable all the time. That's not mourning. That's not what the Bible is speaking about. It's not also someone saying, keep going. In the end, everything will work out all right. And it's not what I would call a put-on false piety, the false puritanism. In the same way that you can have a false joy, you can have a false mourning. What mourning is, is it is something that comes from within us. It's an attitude. It's a reaction. It's more than an emotion, but it includes emotion. So, what does Jesus mean when he says mourning? What actually is it? Firstly, it is a spiritual condition and attitude. And what Jesus is concerned about here is not mourning over death or not mourning over any other loss that we may have, although these are consequences of what we should mourn over. It is mourning over sin. Romans seven twenty four. Paul says this, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I In myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. We will excuse our sin. We will contrast our sin with our goodness. We will contrast our sin with other people's. Again, in the world, if you're trying to bring the gospel to people, you're trying to tell them of a savior who saves from sin, and people will go, well, I don't need to be saved from sin. That's why the gospel is almost impossible to communicate to people. Because it's like, as Jesus himself put it, you don't go to the doctor unless you're sick. Well, the people you will meet at work tomorrow, the people you will meet often in your home or in the gym or with your friends or whatever, they are are not people who see themselves as sinners in need of a savior. In fact, any such talk is just profoundly opposite to where they feel themselves to be. I'm not as bad as so-and-so, 
or I'm a basically decent person. The trouble also, though, is that those of us who are Christians too often buy into that. We have a defective sense of sin caused by a defect, defective doctrine of sin. So we regard sin as an anomaly. We regard it as something that other people do to us. We regard it as a, um, just a mistake, almost like a disease. What we're very reluctant to admit, and even those of us who are Christians, and we know the jargon, we'll admit it in jargon terms, but in our hearts, it's very hard for us to say we're really sinners. Um, don't go to this lady for your teaching ever, but Joyce Meyer, I haven't mentioned her for months, so I'm going to mention her now. Uh, she has this extraordinary talk where, and I can't, I can't believe how many evangelical Christians say, oh, I get so much from Joyce. She has this extraordinary talk where she says, I'm no longer a sinner. I was a sinner, but I'm no longer a sinner because Jesus has saved me from my sin. Paul says, I'm a wretched man. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. But Joyce Meyer says, I'm no longer a sinner. I think one of the things that we need, and I'm including myself in this, we need a proper understanding of the biblical teaching about sin and of who God is so that we can come with a right attitude before him. Like David in Psalm 51, which is just such an extraordinary psalm in so many ways. I was born in sin. I was conceived in iniquity. And he talks about how in his very inmost being, he is deeply conscious of his own sin. By the way, that is one of the most dangerous prayers you will ever pray in your life. Lord, show me my sin. Because if the Lord answers it, you will not be able to stand. You will find it very, very difficult. It's corporate as well. It's personal. It's also corporate. Because we see the effect of sin in the world. Habakkuk 1.4. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Psalm 119. Verse 136. Streams of tears flow from my eyes. For your law is not obeyed. I don't think that we have a consciousness of sin if we are just able to point out faults in other people or things that are wrong with society. I think we just moan. But to be conscious of how, even a little bit of how God sees the world and sees sin in the world and his eyes are too pure to look even upon evil. To be conscious of that lays a heavy burden on us and causes us genuinely to mourn. And that is what Jesus is speaking of here. Because the person who mourns is the person who's seen God. The same sight of God brings him comfort. We, we, we sang about that in Psalm 130. But there is a, a fear of God, which is not just the fear of being discovered, but an awe and a reverence that we come into the presence of the Holy One and we are not holy and the world we live in is not holy. And it is distressing and depressing and causes us to mourn. I'm reading... Uh, an old book that I picked up by a man called C.E.M. Jod. And Jod was an uh, early 20th century English philosopher, brilliant man, brilliant writer, 
very committed atheist uh, along the lines of George Bernard Shaw and um, others. And this book is his testimony of how he was converted after the Second World War. Because after the Second World War, as he contemplated everything, he said, the one thing I could not get rid of was the existence of human sinfulness. And it drove him almost to despair, and it drove him to seek Christ. I was hearing of another man who was in a prison camp in China during the Second World War. And he was, again, an atheist. And as he saw man's inhumanity to man, he gave up on his secularism and atheism. But he describes how he saw religious people, missionaries, and the way they behaved. And they weren't any better, except for one man. He observed one man, and he wrote that if any man was a saint, this man was. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe how this man treated the guards, treated the other prisoners, how he was cheerful even though he was beaten and ultimately killed. He died just before the Second World War ended. He was speaking, of course, of Eric Little. Now, Eric Little's great achievement celebrated in Chariots of Fire was winning the Olympic gold. But actually, Eric Little's great achievement was in that Japanese intern camp and what he did. And this skeptic, as he looked and he saw... Yes, he could see the Bible's teaching about sin, and Little was very, very conscious of his own sin. But to see somebody who actually genuinely mourned over it. Here's the thing that I think for those of us who are Christians, maybe need to ask ourselves when we try and communicate the good news. If we mourn over other people's sins more than we mourn over our own, I'm not sure that we've understood ourselves or what sin actually is. So... The question then arises, doesn't this make the Christian life miserable? Those people who walk around with a long face say, oh, I'm just a dreadful sinner, I'm a worm of the dust, and so on. Well, I don't think it does, and here's why. It deals a death blow to the idea that the Christian is always on an emotional high. Sometimes as a Christian, you will be tired, and you will be exhausted, and you will be, because of that, you will be discouraged, and you will be depressed. Sometimes, as a Christian, you will have a heavy burden upon you because you are conscious of your own sinfulness and conscious of other people's sinfulness. Whenever a Christian is conscious of sin, he or she will be grieved by it, but the depth of that will vary. However, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And here is where the absolute sheer beauty of the gospel comes. Because some people say, don't be so miserable. Why can't you tell us some happy stuff? And then we just get on with lives. Don't worry, be happy. Every little thing is going to be all right. And the Bible comes and tells us the reality. Everything's a mess. Everything's screwed up. And you, most of all. And then God brings his comfort. And his comfort is not to minimize the sin. It is to make us see the solution. If we genuinely mourn for sin, it is grace that makes us mourn for our sinfulness. I have never met anyone yet who genuinely mourns for their sin, who I look at and go, they're done. I've met many people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And sometimes you wonder, can't can't you see? Don't you get it? There's, 
It's grace that makes us mourn for our sinfulness. The law convicts of sin, but grace melts our hearts. It is emotional. It's a personal emotion that takes place, takes root in the heart, and is outwardly shown. Because here is the thing. Real Christianity makes us more emotionally sensitive, not less. Now, I might be a wee bit out on a limb here, but take Paul as an example. I get the impression about Paul before he became a Christian that he was somebody you wouldn't want to know. Probably introverted, proud, hard-hearted, certainly a religious bigot. But then, afterwards, after he met Jesus, after he became a believer, what sensitivity and what pain he had to go through. What extraordinary, when you read his letters and you see the emotion, you see the pain, and you see everything else, it's just a deep, deep, deep conviction of sin. Being spiritually stretched will involve pain. If you want to grow as a Christian, please don't think, I became a Christian, I saw my sin, I grieved for my sin, I mourned for my sin, I repented, and now my life is on an upward, and I'm not going to go through that experience again. Actually, Martin Luther was correct to stress that the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. Because as God works in your life, it's a bit like he just keeps peeling the layers away. Remember in the film Shrek? Um, sorry to bring Shrek into this, but remember in the film Shrek where the, the kind of talks about Onion Boy just peeling away bit by bit by bit, and you keep peeling, there's always more. Or if you think of um, when you do parse the parcel, and you have a parcel, and you get, you stops at you, and you pull off that outer layer, and then it goes around again, you pull off another outer layer, and you go again, and pulls off another outer layer. Sometimes the Christian life is like that. God rarely goes right to the very center of your heart and shows you all your sin at once. I'm not sure that any of us could cope. But I think we go through experiences in life where God reveals things to us that are humbling, but he does so in grace. I think um, Lloyd-Jones, whose commentary on, on the Sermon on the Mount I just love, says this, the true Christian is sorrowful, not miserable, sober-minded, but not sullen, serious, but not cold or prohibitive. There's warmth and attraction. In fact, the person who mourns for their sin is probably more human and more warm than the person who may be quite censorious and hard-hearted. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's arguing against superficiality. The true Christian is not superficial or shallow in any sense. There is a depth. There is a heart work. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Out of this arises joy. This morning we looked at a lot of the things about joy. Now, I'm reluctant to put this into a system, but joy and sorrow are combined together in the Bible. The conviction of sin is often necessary before a true experience of joy. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Well, what are the chains? They are 
the deadness of our sins. They are the sorrow for our own sins. And this is like Jesus. These characteristics. Jesus did mourn. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he saw what happened. At the Garden of Gethsemane, it's personal as well. Um, You know, sometimes we're saying he shed not tears for his own grief. I'm not convinced about that, actually. I, I would put a qualification on that one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, certainly his sorrow was such and so intense that he wept, or he swept, sweated, as it were, it says, great drops of blood. Lloyd-Jones, I think, makes far too much of the fact that we have no record of Christ laughing. Um, I, I think that would make Christ inhuman. But it's true that there is to be no false brightness. There is a seriousness about the Christian life. We do weep over Jerusalem and our sins, and we do weep over the grave of Lazarus. I think one of the problems in the church so often is this kind of false brightness. Oh, don't worry, everything's happy, everything's great, everything's wonderful. And then God says, yeah, but let me show you who you are. Let me show you what this city is like. Let me show you what I see. And we go, no, 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 we want to be happy. And Christ says, no, if you're serious, if you're serious about following me, you know how the jargon people use, we've got the heart of Christ or the mind of Christ. And I think, nah, we don't. Because how can we see what goes on even in the little bit that we do see and not be heartbroken? There is a seriousness about the Christian life. Um, Paul tells the young men, that they are to be sober-minded. And he's not just talking about not getting drunk. He's talking about how we think about life. Now, again, please don't misunderstand or misinterpret that as saying that we've got to be morbid or we never enjoy anything. In fact, my argument would be that we enjoy things all the more. But if there's a depth that's in that, because of this comfort, they will be comforted. God brings comfort by delivering, by strengthening, by reassuring. Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Who is a God like you, says Micah, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You know, when your relationships go wrong, whether it's with a partner, whether it's with a relative, whether it's with a friend, one of the key things that happens is when you both start faking it and you both pretend. You pretend to be in love. You pretend to, to have intimate conversations. You pretend. You're hiding stuff. You don't face up to the problems that you actually have. You may even go for counseling and know how to play the game. Well, our relationship with God is often like that. And the solution is often very much the same. Sometimes it's better to hear the hurt and the pain and to weep over it and to forgive and to know. The affliction is removed. The glory outweighs the affliction. Our light and momentary troubles, as Dominic's been preaching to us from Second Corinthians 4.17, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
And this morning, we read again the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. See how that's the opposite of the people who are proud in spirit? But belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Romans 8 tells us that there is a glory that is coming for the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation tells us that that is one in which there is no sin and no mourning for sin because that has all gone and it is all done. But in this life, as we are prepared for glory, if we are going to grow and develop as Christians, we will mourn for our sins. Let me just say finally how we develop this particular characteristic. First is simply this, be real. We don't have to put on an appearance of either sadness or jollity. If you're deeply conscious of your sin and you want to weep over it, don't fake joy when you don't have that joy. If you're rejoicing in the Lord and are thankful for what God is doing in your life and you're seeing it, don't suddenly go, oh, well, I better fake some sorrow for my sin just so that I can show how humble I am because then you're going to get real sorrow if the Lord reveals to you what you're actually doing. We have to be real. And I think we have to recognize our own limitations. Sometimes I'm astonished at the shallowness of other people's lives until I look in the mirror of God's word and see the shallowness of my own. We need to meditate upon what we have done. It is experience. It's not imagination. You and I have done horrible things. We have thought horrible things. We have said horrible things. And if you are a mature Christian, you are not going to be stupid enough to say, yeah, but now it's different. Because it's not. Who knows the hidden depths of the blackness in our own hearts? We need to meditate upon that. We need to read the scriptures. They are the mirror. It is the mirror of God's word. And they don't distort. Every other mirror distorts. But God's word does not distort. Can I suggest this? You need to read the culture that we're in. You need to read the the newspapers or whatever it is where you get information and um, understand some of the real things that are going on in life. G.K. Chesterton (laughs) argued as C.E. Jod came to discover that the one Christian doctrine that is absolutely provable beyond any shadow of a doubt is the doctrine of original sin. And the world doesn't have any answer for that. We do. We need to pray for the Spirit to work in our lives. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? You won't often hear this. Honestly, you won't often hear this in charismatic churches. Now, I would argue I'm a charismatic. I think we should all look for gifts of grace. 
But what is the work of the Spirit? It's not to enable us to speak in tongues or to heal people. It's to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Because the preacher can't do it and we can't do it and our culture can't do it. But when the Spirit is at work, one of the things that you know that the Spirit is at work is when there is a deeper consciousness of sin. We need to pray for God's Spirit to work in our life. And, and I honestly... Read and pray the Psalms. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Let me know if there's any foolish way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting because I don't trust my own heart and I don't trust my own eyes. And I don't trust what other people tell me. But lead me through your word. And then for me, this is the, the absolute key. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. We seek Christ because as we mourn and as we see what our sin is we we don't pretend that we can fix it that we can sort it that there's just a little bit if I if I if I go to church a bit more if I pray a bit more if I read the bible a bit more if I help other people a bit more if I do some good works then that'll get it sorted if I stop overeating if I stop over drinking if I just stop watching that pornography or whatever particular addiction you may have that somehow that's it sorted I can fix this thing I think the motto of the antichrist is cold plays fix you and churches shouldn't do it we can't fix people. I, I can't fix anybody and I can't fix myself. When I see the depths, Lord, from the depths, to you I cry. My voice, Lord, do thou hear. As we mourn, we see Christ and we repent and we trust him. And that is an ongoing cycle in the Christian life. I mentioned the Puritans before. John Owens, it's not an easy book, but The Mortification of Sin is just a great book with real depth and real uh, insight into this. To the end of your days, you will be repenting. But as you do, you will also be seeing Christ in his beauty and in his glory. And None more so than if you get the attitude of the Apostle Paul, who to, at the end of his life gave a testimony which did not say, I used to be a terrible sinner, I killed Christians, I blasphemed, and so on. That's not his testimony. His testimony is, I am the chief of sinners. But he has a great savior. That's why Paul loves Jesus so much. That's why Paul acknowledges Christ so much. That's why the Pharisees couldn't get it when the, the woman with an immoral life came and poured perfume on Jesus' feet and, and wiped his feet with her hair. And she said, look, she's been forgiven much, so she loves much. Some of us think that we've been forgiven little. We speak in generalized terms. Oh, yes, we're sinners. We accept all of that. We've got all the language, as I said at the beginning. But none of the heart, none of the sorrow, very little of this morning. So, you're here. You're not a Christian. You want to know how to become a Christian. You ask Jesus to show you 
your need of him and ask him to show you himself as the solution to that need. If you are a Christian and you are struggling with discouragement, real heaviness and, and, and sorrow, think of the comfort that Christ brings when he says, actually, you are blessed because you're seeing it as it actually is. You're not, you're not a freak. There's nothing wrong with you. In fact, you've got it right. But you just need to look away from yourself and look to me. Look away, look away, look away and look to me. And if you're a normal Christian, like myself and others, maybe just a little bit more, we need to be praying, Lord, show me my sin. And we need to be acknowledging specific sins. And we need, perhaps to one another, but most of all, to Christ, and ask for forgiveness. And again, as we saw this morning, you do that. It's a heavy burden, but burdens are lifted at Calvary. You see, you've got that burden. You've got that sin in your life. You've got that difficulty and trouble. Hiding it, denying it doesn't help. Admitting it and coming to the Christ who can take it is the greatest liberation and joy of all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We mourn because of so many different things. But so often, Lord, we confess that our mourning for our own sin is shallow and superficial. We do not see it as you see it. And we ask that in your grace and mercy, you would show us our need and show us our sin. Not that you would destroy us and overwhelm us, but that you would wound us, that we might be healed, that you would show us who we really are, that we might see who you really are. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.